Welcome back. Over the next 90 minutes, we will bring you the session Understanding the Different Faces of Sepsis, with speakers from all over the world, including South Africa, Brazil, the UK, Bangladesh, Vietnam, and Thailand. The session is chaired by Vida Hamilton from the Health Service Executive, Ireland. Without further ado, over to Vida. Good morning. You're very welcome to session seven and day two of the World Sepsis Congress uh, uh, 2021. And this session is about understanding the faces, uh, the different faces of sepsis. And I'd like to give a very warm welcome to our international audience uh, here today and to thank very much our uh, very diverse um, panel uh, of experts uh, who have uh, very graciously given up their time. Um, I'd like to thank our sponsors, uh, the Global Sepsis Alliance, um, the uh, lead, uh, Professor Tex Kassoon, uh, Marvin, uh, who has uh, so ably organized these congresses uh, with the team and um, for the past number of years. Um, I would like to remind everybody that the, uh, there, we have two channels. So at the end of this uh, session, if you want to join the next session, you need to log out and to log into the, um, uh, the second, uh, the next session. Um, and that all sessions are being recorded and will be released uh, starting next Tuesday. I'd like to now introduce our, our first speaker and it's Professor Andrew Argent. He is from South Africa. And he is the director of the largest pediatric intensive care unit in Africa. He's past president of the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive and Critical Care Societies. And he's a particular interest in the appropriate responses to uh, severe sepsis in children, particularly in the poorer countries of the world. So thank you very much, Andrew, uh, for joining us this morning. Over to you. Well. Thank you very much, Vida, for that introduction and, and a huge thank you to the organizers for inviting me to speak. And over the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to be focusing on what I believe are unique considerations of sepsis in children. I'm going to start by looking at a little bit of the overall context of children in terms of mortality and infection, and then focus a little bit on why children are different. And as we seek a definition that helps us to identify patients early and provide appropriate therapy, what are some of the things that we need to think about? So that's a picture of the world reflecting where the deaths in children occur. And you can see the massive over preponderance of under five deaths in Africa, in Asia, and tiny amounts of deaths in the rest of the world. By contrast, the amount of research related to those specific areas is reflected in this map with a tiny proportion of the science coming from the areas affected or where children are affected and predominantly by infection. And I've used the presence of anesthetists as a surrogate for the resources available to provide critical care. And again, you can see that for Africa, most of the anesthetists are actually present in South Africa. And for Africa and Asia, there are apparently minor amounts of resources available for children. So that's the overall context. Now, some years ago, John Marshall made this comment in an editorial about sepsis saying that construct of sepsis is complex because it has an infection 
and a consequence which relates to the host response. And that leads to the issue that you can't just deal with it by anti-infective therapy. But before that time, there was also the whole publication of the pyro approach saying that the response to infection depends on the predisposition of the host, the infective agent itself, the responses that it elicits and the specific organs that are actually affected. And yet I would put to you that those constructs there totally underestimate the complexity of the wide range of organisms related to infection from viruses, bacteria, parasites, fungi, and potentially other things that we don't know about. The massive range in predisposition, and I'm gonna highlight later in this talk some of the issues about the genetics and the background that we haven't even started to address. And then I would put it to you that the children that we are looking at who are exposed to therapy, these infections come in a huge diversity and I believe are very different to adults. Is infection important for children? We're here some recent data from The Lancet looking by age category at the percentage of all sepsis related deaths across the world in 2017. And what I want to highlight is this fact that in the early years of life, a huge proportion of the deaths are related to infection and the consequences of severe infection. And so whatever sepsis is, the, the congruence of children, infection and death is highlighted and I believe different to that that's seen in adults. Let's take an example very specifically in the area of COVID. And here's some data from the Western Cape in South Africa. A little earlier this year, when we'd had about close to 300,000 documented cases, at that time, we'd had over 10,000 deaths. At that time, it was 11,480. And I want you to see down in this corner here, that when you look at the infections, there are hardly any in children. That may be a sampling error, but actually individuals less than 20 years of age made up less than 5% of the total infections. Most of the deaths happened in the 60 to 70 year olds. The clinical manifestations of severe COVID in children are profoundly different to those in adults you get the whole multi-inflammatory or multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And that just looks totally different to the acute appearance of COVID in adults. So that at least is some suggestion that the responses to infection may be profoundly different. I'd also put it to you that children are not a homogeneous group. There's this massive range from neonates through to young adults in terms of size, functional reserve, and this issue of ongoing growth and development. It's worth bearing in mind that small children have a fraction of the functional reserve from the cardiovascular, respiratory, and many other systems that adults have. They have tiny reserves related to nutrition, for instance. If you look at sepsis in children, 
there's a huge preponderance of viral infections as pathogens that cause severe infection. The responses to those infection are profoundly influenced by previous exposure and energy resources, which I'll come back to. And it's also interesting to ask the question, what actually kills children who get severe infections? Does that happen acutely with acute septic shock? Does it happen over a much longer period of time with ongoing infection, ongoing damage? And is the issue about a cardiovascular death or is this related to brain damage and other organs failing? Here's just some data that has been highlighted by Harbison and others in Frontiers in Immunology some years ago, looking at the differences between adults and neonates in terms of the use of energy in response to infection. And what it's highlighting is that adults in general have a huge reserve of energy, which is not being used, which is available to fight infection. And so they often use huge amounts of energy in the inflammatory response to infection. By contrast, neonates have a tiny reserve of energy. And in fact, they can't use that energy to fight the infection without risking vital functions. And the consequence of that is that they tend not to have a massive inflammatory response. That's why you tend to find many more bacteria in the blood in small infants than you do in adults. And that's why also the response to the infection is profoundly different. And so we have this issue that children are affected by severe infections are in a different context. But I want to put something else to you, and that is that most of the pediatric literature comes from rich countries, and the laboratory tools for diagnosis are often not available in the poorer countries. Just to highlight the proportions of selected age groups in world population, look at this graph. What you can see in Africa is that 40% of the population is under 15, while some 3% of the population is over 65%, over 65 years. Compare that to Europe when those proportions are almost equal. So children in Africa are a much more important or numerate part of the population. There's also a fascinating issue that if you look at genetic diversity, Here's this paper showing that as you go further and further away from Addis Ababa, you find a drop in haplotype heterozygosity. What that means is that you have a much higher genetic diversity among the children in Africa. And that has huge implications for being able to find and work through research issues on genetic contributions to responses to infection and susceptibility to infection. And so trying to put that all together, I would put to you that children die in their thousands every day predominantly in the poorer countries of the world. Most of our research comes from rich countries and is ICU based. If we want to address the issue of mortality and morbidity from severe infection in children, 
we need to focus broadly, not just on what happens in the ICU, what happens all the way from first exposure to an infection, all the way through to death. It would be in everyone's advantage to carry out research in Africa because with the increased genetic diversity, there's a much higher chance that we will actually find genetic underpinnings and factors related to responses to infection. And besides, we have many patients in that area mostly affected. And right now, it seems to me that many of the tools that we use to try and diagnose infection are geared to adults, to the needs of that, those adults, and to adults in rich countries and would do us a huge amount of good to actually focus on tools that are appropriate to the children who are most affected. So thank you very much for your attention and I'd be very happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Andrew, uh, for a very uh, stimulating uh, presentation. The uh, there are greetings from all over the world, every continent of the, the world coming come in your direction. So we have a very wide um, uh, uh, audience listening to us the, this morning, uh, well, this morning from my time, uh, which is fantastic. Um, Pediatric sepsis is, is difficult. It's difficult to recognize. Um, and the treatment is certainly in the initial response is much more controversial than it is in the, the adult. Um, and there are also issues in relation to nature versus nurture in the risk of mortality uh, associated with sepsis. Um, would you like to comment or, or give us some advice on, on how we can address those issues of recognition, but also um, recognizing that there are nurture implications in, in outcome? So I think it's very difficult one to, to respond to that. So I think one concern for me is that we very often focused on the critical care side of infection. And yet, if you're dealing with a population that has limited reserve and tends to get sick and very sick very quickly, you need to focus very definitely on the emergency department, the earlier issues of presentation. But the problem with that is that in that phase, the proportion, for instance, of febrile children who presenting, who actually have a severe infection will go on to severe problems is very small. And that makes the whole issue particularly challenging there. Um, and again, you're absolutely right on this issue of nurture versus nature. I think when one looks at conditions like asthma, one's realized that the immune response to any infection is profoundly affected by what you've been exposed to before, what your nutritional status is, what your genetics are. And it seems to me that many of the children with severe infection who are suffering consequences may have profoundly different early responses to the children in the rich countries of the world who have, in many cases, long-standing underlying disease and immune suppression, and extremely different to the adult. I've highlighted some of the issues about the energy consumption, but you're absolutely right. There's evidence, for instance, that the vaccine profile that you've been exposed to affects how you will respond to infections early on in life. 
So those are areas where we're just going to have to explore in more and more depth what happens. I think the last comment is that if anything has come out of the feast study some years ago, there were things that we were pretty sure we knew all about. And yet that study showed us that we didn't know as much about fluid therapy as we thought we did in sepsis. And that actually the responses were not what we believed were the case. And interestingly, I think that shook things for adults as well as for children. Thank you. It's always good to be shook, isn't it? Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, so I'd like to uh, introduce our next speaker, uh, Professor Flavia Machado from um, Brazil. Uh, Flavia is Professor of Intensive Care and Chair of the Intensive Care Section of the Department of Anesthesiology, Pain and Intensive Care Medicine at the Federal University <coughs> excuse me, of San Paulo in Brazil. She has worked with the Latin American Sepsis Institute since its inception in 2005. She's a member of the Surviving Sepsis International Guideline Committee since 2000 and the 2012 version, and she provides the perspective for, of low and middle income countries uh, into that group. She's also a founder member of the, uh, uh, the Global Sepsis Alliance and its Quality Improvement Committee in particular. Um, thank you, Flavia. Thank you, Vida, uh, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've been asked to discuss a little bit about, uh, should, about recognizing COVID as sepsis. So let's go for that. Uh, as you might remember, we have a new definition of sepsis, which is the sepsis tree. And sepsis is a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response, caused by an infection. So my task is easy. I should only convince you that we have these three points uh, in COVID. Uh, I would say there is no doubt that we have an infection, SARS-CoV-2. And uh, yes, I think that we should, we have uh, this related host response. Uh, we have a direct lesion for the virus. It is different. Nobody's saying that the mechanisms, the cellular mechanism and the inflammatory this regulation is the same of sepsis, but uh, we all recognize uh, uh, similar uh, pathways and similar scenarios that are, we are quite used to see uh, in our septic, bacterial septic patients, let's say uh, so. Uh, so uh, when you see a ARDS patient, we are seeing the same profiles, the same uh, pinomocyto uh, uh, uh problems we are seeing uh, uh, the membrane yaline, we are seeing the pulmonary edema. When we are talking about this uh, hallmark problem uh, in COVID, which is uh, the prothrombotic uh, problems that we have, uh, we know that it's different from sepsis because in sepsis, we mostly have microcirculation problems. And we are seeing much more in COVID arterial thrombosis and uh, major venous, venous thrombosis. But yes, uh, we already had this uh, in, uh, in sepsis. And yes, there is a lot of uh, dysregulated response when we uh, uh, talk about these mechanisms uh, in thrombosis. And of course, I'm not going to go deep uh, on this uh, because it's not the point that we want to make here. 
Uh, we have to make uh, the point that uh, we have similar findings when we discuss uh, uh, bacterial sepsis back on to 20 years ago, when we start to deal with the thrombosis issues in sepsis, we have been trying to treat the microcirculation problem in sepsis for many, many years, and let's say without any success. And yes, for many, many years, we discussed that bacterial sepsis, that sepsis, it was an endothelitis, a disease from our endothelial cells. And again, now with COVID, we are saying that COVID is an endothelial disease. So there are so many, so many similarities in terms of the physiopathogenic of this disease that uh, I would say that the second point, dysregulated uh, host response, it's also uh, uh, fulfilled. And there's the third point. Is there a life-threatening organ dysfunction? in our severe and critical cases of COVID-2? Yes, for sure. Uh, we have a simple description of what COVID can cause in our body. We are so used to see this in our critically ill patients. And yes, they are dying from this. This is a uh, simple description of uh, the cases that we have been uh, uh, having in our, uh, our service. You all know that Brazil, it's the epicenter of COVID now. We are losing three or 4,000 people every day. And most of these cases, they are dying from refractory septic shock. They are dying from multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. They are not dying from uh, pneumonia only or a direct lesion of the virus uh, in our uh, lungs. And yes, they are dying. The mortality rates, at least in Brazil, and I believe in many middle-income countries, is very high. We have uh, a program in Brazil. It's called uh, UTIs Brasileira. It's a joint initiative between EPIMED and AMIBI. And uh, they are free uh, for anyone who wants to fulfill quality indicators. And for this, we already see that there is a, uh, this will be biased results towards qualified ICUs. They are able to, uh, uh, to have this, uh, all this data uh, 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 because the, the workload to have data collection, it's high. But let's have a look. They already have data for more than 130,000 COVID patients, and this is quite regularly updated. And as you can see, when you look, for instance, on the uh, mortality rate for mechanical ventilated patients, the, this is very high. This is up to 68%. And that's a slight difference between public and private institutions. Of course, uh, when you look at uh, uh, the overall uh, ICU mortality, there is a huge difference between public and private, but this is because of the disparities in the ICU uh, criteria admission. But the point that I want to make, at this is definitely uh, life-threatening. And uh, we also have more data coming from Brazil. And again, I believe that it's, uh, we have uh, probably the same results coming from other middle-income countries. And this is very nice paper coming from the group of Fernando Boza. They published the data from the first 2050 uh, to, to 2050,000 hospital admissions uh, in Brazil. 
And again, what we see is that at least in patients uh, that goes through invasive mechanical ventilation, the mortality rate is quite high, even in patients that are quite young. There's another thing that is important with COVID, and it's important for sepsis, which is the unique opportunity for research. We have a problem with sepsis, which was the heterogeneity, uh, because we have all, all these uh, infectious agents involved. And now we have a single agent in thousands of patients, which allow us to, uh, uh, to improve our research capacity. And this is happening happening in our countries, in high-income countries, but also in low- and middle-income countries. And this is just an example of what we have been doing. Uh, in Brazil, we have this joint initiative between BrickNet and other institutions. And uh, why I'm telling you this? Because there is another similarity between sepsis, bacterial sepsis, let's say, and what is happening with COVID, which is this, <laughs> the survivorship was considered a research opportunity, an important thing that happens with our regular sepsis. And now we are seeing the same problem with the COVID patients. And actually this is one of the major studies that we've been doing in coalition, which is the long-term follow-up of these patients. And part of this uh, results have been presented in a WHO meeting uh, by Regis, which is the PI of this study, and the results are not good. Uh, we've been already following uh, more than a thousand patients for nine months now, and both uh, readmission and mortality for these patients, mostly those patients that have been in ICU and in mechanical ventilation are pretty high, as it is high for those patients who had regular sepsis, bacterial sepsis. And there is another point which is important. Uh, COVID, uh, at least in our settings, which we already knew, we have a lot of problems with healthcare associated infections. We have a lot of problems with multi-drug resistance. And now with COVID, we are having serious problems with the coexistence of this in COVID patients. So of course, we have a lot of nosocomial superinfection in COVID. And we are having also problems with the sepsis in non-COVID patients because the basic healthcare, it's much worse. After one year, one year of pandemic, uh, our system of our healthcare system that have been prioritizing the COVID patients in the last year, unfortunately, are not taking care in a good manner of our non-COVID patients. So the numbers for sepsis in this last year are also probably much, much higher. So why all this is so important? It is because the strategies to deal with both problems are similar. It doesn't matter if sepsis is caused by a bacteria, a virus, a fungal, it matters that this, we have to do similar things to prevent and to diagnose and to deal with it. So prevention for COVID, it's vaccination, it's a, a good hygiene, it's to prevent, preventing death by COVID, to prevent the healthcare associated infection, which is, as I said, it's a huge problem 
in our settings. Increasing the perception for the problem, it's a good strategy for COVID and it's a good strategy for any sepsis. Early diagnosis is important as well. It's not just a matter of giving antibiotics at the first hour. It's a matter of going to the hospital early in the process of the disease and receiving adequate treatment. And of course, as I just show you, the long-term follow-up and the rehabilitation process of this patient is important regardless the causative agent. And most important, it is to convince our governments that sepsis it brings a huge burden to our healthcare system, regardless if it's a virus, a bacteria, or a fungus. So what we expect, we expect that after all this nightmare of COVID, it, did, it does leave us a legacy. It leaves us a legacy in terms of the perception of all disparities we already had with a bacterial sepsis with our previous burden of sepsis. And we expect also that all the improvements we had with the communication, with the teamwork, with the awareness about the problem can be inhibited and keep uh, on the track our fight uh, against sepsis. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Flavia. Um, so, Flavia, I think much like cancer, um, sepsis has a, a collective of uh, diseases that, that cause to cause it, but with all with a, a common presentation, a common phenotype, and a, a common at least initial uh, strategy uh, in caring for the patients that then gets nuanced to the individual response. Um, and I think that when COVID arrived, it was a new disease. Um, which uh, in which came in very large volumes, uh, which is a, a tremendous stress to the system, uh, not just at a delivery from a delivery point of view, but from an individual clinician. How do I treat this patient in front of me? This disease is new. Um, um, how do you think the the organisational structures of uh, the surviving sepsis campaign and the global sepsis alliance can help? Uh, reduce that burden on the individual and indeed on, on organizations in managing these new diseases? I think that both organizations you mentioned are doing a great job on this. For instance, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is releasing uh, guidelines uh, and they are updating this. We are, because I am involved actually, uh, releasing uh, uh, updates on COVID in a rate and a speed that we have never seen before. For, for just an example, for the regular surviving sepsis campaign, we have updates every four years, and we are already preparing the third version of the surviving sepsis campaign on COVID. And uh, this is uh, directly linked for, with the fact that we are generating evidence very quick, as I mentioned uh, briefly, uh, it is a unique opportunity to improve our research capacity and to find out things uh, that we were not able to find or to uh, uh, with a regular sepsis, because as you said, we have a, a single agent and thousands of patients to do research. So uh, this is a very good thing from the point of view of surviving sepsis campaign. And I believe that we in Global Sepsis Alliance are doing a great job as well, because we are... Um, uh, trying to link all this 
which is happening with the fact that SEPs is a great umbrella and uh, that we need to focus all the energy that we are spending with COVID uh, and uh, bring this to the fight against sepsis because actually it is the same thing. We are fighting against a viral sepsis and all the structure that the countries are building in this fight should be transferred to the fight against sepsis because we should never forget that we lose thousands and millions of lives, thousands in my country, millions of lives in this planet for sepsis every year. Uh, thank you, Flavia. And I think the research um, and the col- in multinational collaboration and the uh, very quick uh, publication of uh, results um, in really good, well-structured trials has been really helpful in guiding us in, in our care of, of patients with, with COVID over the past 18 months. And um, so that's been uh, huge. And there's incredible work done in Brazil as well in uh, supporting the development of a vaccination um, and, and data around the effectiveness of our vaccines. So thank you for all of the work that you've been doing, Flavia, and thank you for your time. I know you're very uh, busy intensivist at this time. So I'd like to uh, move to our next speaker, who's uh, uh, Dr. David Barr, who's a lecturer in infectious diseases in the University of Liverpool and an honorary research uh, associate at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and the University of Cape Town. He is a specialist in infectious diseases and his main interest is in uh, HIV associated uh, tuberculosis. Um, So he is uh, going to speak to us um, this morning um, about uh, sepsis and mycobacterium tuberculosis. So thank you very much, uh, David. Thanks very much uh, uh, for the introduction, Vida, and thanks for for inviting me to give this talk. So this um, is really a talk on severe HIV-associated tuberculosis, because that's the leading cause of sepsis in many high HIV burden settings. But it's also a talk about how host response relates to microbial factors like microbial load using HIV-associated TB as an example. So I hope it will be of some interest to sepsis researchers, uh, even in low HIV burden settings. Uh, And pathogen factors, uh, such as microbial load, they're often acknowledged in sepsis discussions, but they're rarely measured in sepsis uh, research. I just want to show you an example of what you find when you do, uh, when you are able to measure microbial load. So the, uh, the the first point to make though is just to show how dominant TB is as a cause of sepsis in some uh, high HIV burden settings, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And there've been a number of uh, groundbreaking studies that have shown this in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, Just two examples, uh, the SSSP uh, trial from Zambia and the uh, uh, PRISM-U study from Uganda. Uh, Both of these were studies of hospitalized patients with sepsis and predominantly HIV positive patients. Uh, And they were studies of sepsis interventions, but they also collected data on the microbiological etiology of sepsis in those settings. And both these studies found that TB is more common than all the other identified pathogens put together. Uh, So essentially, uh, the probability of having TB, given that you have sepsis in a high HIV burden setting such as these, is really high. 
So what if we look at it from the other side and say, well, what's the probability of having sepsis given that you have uh, been hospitalized with HIV-associated tuberculosis? And here I think the plot thickens a little bit. Um, and I'm going to show you some data that speaks to that from a large cohort study called the KDHTB study. So let me just introduce that study first. Um, the KDHTB study uh, uh, was a large cohort uh, recruited in Kailicha Hospital in South Africa. And the study was run by Graham Menkes and uh, Charlotte Schutz at the University of Cape Town. And this study recruited uh, patients with a suspected new diagnosis of HIV-associated TB and patients that had a CD4 count less than 350. Uh, and the study did extensive baseline uh, uh, sampling of these patients, including TB diagnostics, and ultimately recruited 570 patients with a final diagnosis of TB, uh, of HIV-associated TB. Um, and of these 570 patients, 21% died by 12 weeks follow-up, uh, with most of those deaths occurring in the first two weeks. So a similar kind of survival curve to a severe sepsis population in a critical care unit. Um, So uh, looking at those 570 patients with their high mortality, as you would expect, they do um, uh, have a high prevalence of host responses associated with organ damage. But interestingly, uh, sepsis scores uh, such as QSOFA, uh, SIRS and SOFA are not well tuned to this patient population. Uh, there's very little agreement between those different scores and perhaps more strikingly still, uh, QSOFA is no better than a coin toss at predicting mortality in this patient group. So what about lactate and mean arterial blood pressure uh, um, uh, 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 and septic shock in this patient group? Well, um, if you look uh, uh, at the uh, distribution of, of, uh, of uh, venous lactate on admission in this uh, study, it's very strongly associated with, with mortality but mean arterial blood pressure on admission is not strongly associated with mortality at all. And uh, more strikingly still, there's no correlation between lactate and blood pressure in this patient group. There is perhaps some suggestion that patients uh, who have both a high lactate and low blood pressure have, uh, do particularly badly, uh, but th this is not a phenotype that is common in this patient group, including in those patients that ultimately die. So what does drive mortality in patients hospitalized with HIV-associated TB? Well, um, it turns out that uh, uh, in uh, critically ill patients with HIV-associated TB, uh, the, probably the majority of those patients have TB bloodstream infection. Um, TB bloodstream infection is something that the textbooks will tell you is quite rare, but uh, it's only rare in low HIV burden settings. In settings where there's a lot of HIV, um, it, it's extremely common. I'm showing you some data here from a 7,000 patient IPD meta-analysis, which adjusted for factors such as how many blood cultures were done to identify TB bloodstream infection. And it found that in patients that were hospitalized and that were danger sign positive, uh, which is a WHO metric, looking at things like raised respiratory rate, raised heart rate, and inability to walk on aided, uh, once CD4 count falls below 100, uh, probably a majority of these patients have uh, TB bloodstream infection. And more strikingly still, uh, having the blood uh, uh, culture positive disease is strongly associated with mortality, particularly early mortality. 
And this association uh, um, persists after adjusting for factors such as CD4 count. So it's not a kind of epiphenomenon of immunosuppression, uh, but is possibly more causally linked uh, to the outcome. Now, uh, TB blood culture is only one way to uh, uh, identify uh, and quantify TB dissemination or TB microbial load in these patients. There are also urine antigen tests for TB, urine lipoarabinomannan, um, and also the use of uh, commercial PCR kits like the expert system for identifying TB in urine. And these both report on TB dissemination from the blood into the renal tract. And we've also developed a method for using this uh, PCR method directly on the bloodstream. And if we just take those five tests and kind of add them up into a very simple score, uh, which we'll call the disseminated TB score, ranging from zero if all those tests are negative to five if all tests are positive, we can get a kind of simple readout on, on the degree of, of TB dissemination. I'm going to come back to that score in a couple of slides time. So just hold that in the back of your mind. Um, but first, I want to... Um, uh, uh, come back to the host response in this uh, in this patient group, um, and the KDHTB study measured a, a large number of uh, markers uh, uh, that are putatively associated with sepsis, uh, and I'm showing you here 20 of those markers. Uh, mostly uh, soluble immune markers, but also factors like lactate, CRP, neutrophil percentage, uh, lymphocyte counts. Um, and if we uh, look at those 20 variables, we find that the, the, there's a lot of covariance between them. And we can kind of summarize the variance in all 20 of those variables or summarize about half the variance in all those 20 variables on just two axes of a principal components analysis. And this captures a very meaningful representation of patient phenotype. Um, if we plot patients by their PC1 and PC2 scores derived from those variables, we find that patients that are scoring above mean on PC2 and below mean on PC1 have about an odds ratio of nine compared uh, for death compared to patients in the opposite uh, quadrant of that PCA space. Uh, so it's a kind of low-dimensional, robust representation of patient phenotype that relates strongly to mortality. Now, the interesting thing is that if you then map this disseminated TB score onto that PCA space, it also maps extremely closely with patients with more dissemination uh, having a very uh, different location in, in that patient phenotype space uh, compared to patients with a low disseminated TB score. So I think this is fairly um, convincing evidence that uh, this kind of microbial load variable is an underlying latent variable that's driving both patient phenotype and risk of mortality. Um, to put that another way, um, I would say that um, uh, being able to measure this variable allows us to interrogate host response in interesting ways. And I'm just gonna on my last slide here, show you an example. Uh, of that, a sort of simple example relating to uh, patient temperature, infection load, and, uh, and death. And I think we would all agree that uh, temperature is associated with infection. Um, and I think most people would agree that temperature tells you something about patient's prognosis or risk of death. Certainly having a, a, a uh, hypothermia in severe sepsis is a very bad prognostic indicator. And perhaps also having a very high temperature, that is a sort of dysregulated temperature, might also be associated with mortality. Um, 
So if we take that kind of causal structure that we're hypothesizing and we use that to, to build a regression model that allows there to be an interaction between disseminated TB score and fever in terms of how they predict death, we find something quite interesting, which is that uh, the relationship or the shape of the relationship between temperature and risk of death varies depending on how much disseminated TB you have. So patients with a low disseminated TB score in purple on the graph uh, have this kind of classic U-shaped relationship, but patients that have more disseminated TB having a lower temperature is always worse. It's always more prognostically bad, even within the normal range of temperature. So uh, one of the implications of this is that uh, the apparent relationship between fever and mortality will depend on which patients you recruit to a study. So that's a, a so-called uh, Simpson's paradox. And I wonder how much of this type of thing is going on in sepsis pathophysiology studies more generally, particularly in studies that aren't able to measure microbial load. Okay, so briefly some, uh, some conclusions. The, the probability of TB given that you have sepsis is not the same as the probability of sepsis given that you have TB. And many patients with severe HIV associated TB die without presenting with a kind of septic shock type picture. Um, causative pathogen, I think, is a really good place to start when you're thinking about heterogeneity in, in sepsis phenotype. Um, and uh, HIV-associated TB in critically unwell patients is essentially a bacteremic illness, irrespective of what the textbooks will tell you. And finally, microbial load is a fundamental determinant of clinical immune phenotype, at least in HIV-TB, and it's a variable that helps us interpret host response. Uh, so I've just put up a thanks slide. Uh, I particularly want to thank the Menkes Group, the University of Cape Town, uh, and also some of the, some of the guys in, in, in Liverpool. Thanks for listening. Uh, happy to take any questions. Thanks, David. Um, so uh, we have a question here. What do you think about using blood cultures to detect TB, I suppose, in the general population and then perhaps in the more specific population um, that your, uh, your talk is based on? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. And I, I should emphasize that I think blood cultures are not very useful clinically. And the reason for that is it takes an average of about 20 days to get a result from a blood culture for TB. Uh, and as I showed you, the mortality in this patient group is very high within the first two weeks. So they're a useful, I think, tool for understanding what's going on pathophysiologically, but they are not a useful tool clinically, irrespective of the fact that they're simply not available in most settings uh, and most uh, particularly low resource settings. But what we do have is other markers of TB dissemination, which are rapid diagnostics, such as the expert platform and such as those urine antigen tests. And if you are dealing with patient populations like this, that's where you would want to focus your diagnostic strategies. Well, thank you, David. And the persistent um, bacteremia and the association with mortality, is that a marker of the failure of uh, the immune response to be able to uh, control uh, the, uh, the load of uh, TB in the system? That's undoubtedly the case. And TB is a very difficult bug to kill. You know, it's a very persistent organism generally. But I think it's also an argument that says, have we really optimized the antimicrobial strategies in this patient group? Uh, and the uh, Menkes group uh, are now pursuing uh, randomized control trials focused on reducing this microbial burden more rapidly in this patient group that have an extremely high microbial uh, burden. Uh, but yeah, I think it's always worth when we're thinking about host-directed therapy is always thinking, you know, have we optimized the antimicrobial killing, uh, uh, which is a sort of tried and tested method for saving lives in sepsis. 
Yeah. And, and have you observed TB iris in your patients after TB treatment? Uh, undoubtedly, yes. These patients are at extremely high risk. Uh, they have a high microbial antigen burden and they have a very low CD4 count. And uh, I would probably say the majority of these patients uh, have a TB iris. Uh, and certainly the work from Cape Town that the Menkes Group and others have done have shown that. And that iris occurs really early in, in this patient group, even within seven days of starting ART, which is quite interesting. And, and in sepsis, we talk about a bundled approach to care. How different is the treatment of sepsis due to TB from other um, sepsis due to other causal agents? Uh, that's a great question as well. And we simply don't really have the evidence base, do we? Because, um, uh, you know, the, the number of trials haven't been done. I did mention the SSSP trial from Zambia. I think a lot of this audience would be familiar with. It was a trial of kind of more aggressive fluid resuscitation or a sepsis bundle that showed a higher mortality in the intervention group. And I wonder if one of the reasons for that was because the, actually the majority of patients in that study had HIV-associated TB. Um, and these are not patients that are necessarily presenting with septic shock type picture. They're perhaps patients that are profoundly fluid and electrolyte deplete over several weeks and sort of dumping a lot of fluid into those patients whenever they have physiologically adapted to that state might be more adverse than in a patient that has developed rapidly septic shock over a 12-hour period. Uh, so I think there's a lot of work to be done there, Vida, and, and I don't know we have good answers to that, but we should absolutely be taking into account the cause of pathogen when we're designing those intervention studies in sepsis, I think. There's certainly a lot of interest in this subject. Uh, people are asking about uh, vaccination for TB as a, a strategy in prevention after COVID. They're asking about AMR in TB. And, and I'm interested if, if, you know, COVID has caused a lot of disruption in non-COVID care. Are you worried about how that undelivered non-COVID care may be impacting your uh, patient population? Yes, undoubtedly. And there is certainly some early data that is suggesting that we could be hit with a wave of TB and a wave of HIV associated TB in high HIV burden settings after the disruption caused by COVID, which is a terrifying prospect. Uh, sadly, we don't have effective vaccines uh, for, for, for TB. Um, we have a 100 year old vaccine um, that, uh, you know, there really hasn't been the, the appropriate investment. And I hope one thing we can learn from COVID is that investing heavily in vaccines can get can dig us out of these problems but it remains to be seen whether the international community fund that because this is a disease of poverty so we will see but i thank you for bringing that point up well, thank you very much, uh, David, for a very interesting talk. Um, we're going to move to uh, Dr. Sophie Jakob for our next speaker. Um, so just a slight change in the order of presentations. And uh, Sophie's going to talk about sepsis and dengue. Um, she's the head of the dengue research group in the University of Oxford in Vietnam. She's a physician in infectious diseases and general medicine and is currently leading a large translational program of uh, dengue research. She's work also working on mosquito viral transmission dynamics uh, with the aim of disease prevention. And her overall aim is to improve the management and clinical outcome for patients uh, with dengue at a global level. So thank you, Sophie. Thank you very much uh, for the introduction. Um, so I'm going to talk today uh, about pathogenesis um, of dengue. I just wanted to um, mention that, um, well, I'm going to talk about mainly our research into the pathogenesis of uh, severe dengue today. But just to give a quick background to those who don't know much about dengue, 
it's a mosquito-borne viral illness uh, that actually made it onto the uh, top 10 threats to global health by the WHO in 2019, um, mainly because it continues to expand across the globe and we still don't have any therapeutics uh, and a poorly effective uh, vaccine. So I work in uh, uh, Oxford University Clinical Research Unit, which is housed in the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, which is a large referral hospital, um, which covers the whole of southern Vietnam. So we see a huge burden of dengue every year, up to about 15,000 dengue admissions, um, of which about up to about 500 will, will be admitted to the intensive care unit. And this is uh, the paediatric intensive care unit during the rainy season, where every single bed that you see there is occupied by a dengue shock case. Um, and uh, it, during the peak of the rains, uh, when the dengue cases uh, really surge, um, a, a lot of those beds will be occupied by two or three children. And we're also seeing a lot more adult dengue, uh, and these cases uh, uh, present slightly differently in that they don't get the pure shock that we see in the children. Um, they get often severe organ impairment and, and more hemorrhage. So severe dengue does cover these three syndromes, uh, shock, hemorrhage and severe organ impairment. Uh, sometimes they happen uh, all, all three of them um, and it depends also on age of the patient. So unlike sepsis, uh, dengue uh, takes a few days uh, to evolve. So during the first few days, what we call the febrile phase, uh, the viremia is already peaking, usually by the time a patient presents. And during the first few days, the inflammatory response uh, starts, the capillary leak uh, will occur. Uh, and this usually manifests in what we call the critical phase, where patients can decompensate with either shock or, or bleeding or, or organ impairment. So a lot of the work we've been doing here in Vietnam is trying to identify which patients will go on to get these severe manifestations, as the vast majority uh, will just progress into the recovery phase without any complications. So it's really identifying which patients, because uh, during this rainy season, the amount of dengue patients we see is so huge, it can absolutely just collapse uh, the healthcare services. Um, so... What we've been trying to identify is uh, patients that will go on to get severe disease by trying to understand the pathogenesis uh, more. And what we do know um, is that the dengue virus replicates in monocytes and uh, macrophages. And in a secondary infection, so because there are four serotypes, if you get a second infection with a different serotype, you can often get more severe disease. And this is due to this phenomenon called the antibody-dependent enhancement, whereby sub-neutralizing levels of antibodies can actually facilitate viral entry into uh, cells rather than block the virus. Um, so once you have uh, uh, a higher viral load, this can often then precipitate uh, a, a more of it um, intense immune response uh, and more uh, high, more hyperinflammation. Also, dengue-infected cells secrete NS1 protein, which binds to the endothelial cells and disrupt the endothelial glycocalyx layer, which we think is what causes the plasma leakage that's characteristic of uh, severe dengue. So, this is. Um, 
not unfamiliar. So what we've seen recently with SARS-CoV-2 is that um, many other viruses can cause this hyperinflammatory syndrome or a cytokine storm syndrome, um, SARS-CoV-2, Ebola, influenza, to, to name a few. So there are a, a spectrum of viruses that can cause this syndrome. Um, and what happens once the uh, virus infects the dendritic or, or macrophages and there's macrophage activation in patients that have a dysfunctional NK cell response, these, the macrophage activation actually sort of perpetuates with more cytokines being produced. And then this sort of gives a vicious uh, cycle of this hyperinflammation that is sort of self-escalating. And what we're looking at at the moment is whether as in COVID-19, we can use immunomodulation to block this uh, hyperinflammatory syndrome. So over the last few years, we've been looking into this a bit more and we hypothesized that patients would have a reduced uh, NK cell response, which would lead to macrophage activation, uh, sort of syndrome, expansion, augmented viral replication and, and this uh, uh, release of cytokines. Uh, and then this would manifest as the severe syndrome that we, we've been seeing, again, similar to the sort of COVID-19 patients. So first we looked at uh, NK cell function in a range of uh, dengue uh, severities. And this was done in collaboration with Laura Ravino at the University of Bristol. And we looked at NK cell responses in different uh, leakage grades of dengue. So grade two is patients with severe plasma leak. Uh, so patients with shock. Grade one is moderate leak. and grade zero is, is uh, no evidence of leak. And as you can see um, in the top left panel, there were less activated uh, NK cells and also less expression of granzyme and perforin, which are cytotoxic granules. So we then went on to look at, uh, with some colleagues in, in the Dengue Group at OCRU, at the association of viremia and a clinical outcome. And we looked at three different endpoints in a large pool data set that has been accumulated in OCRU over the last 10 years, uh, looking at severe dengue, also plasma leak and hospitalization. And across the board, we did find that higher viremia was at um, increased risk of developing all three of these endpoints. And this was uh, uh, consistent across age groups, across serotype and immune status. And as you can hear, see here, these are the different serotypes of dengue. Uh, and then you've got severe dengue at the top, then plasma leak and hospitalization um, at the bottom. And the uh, red line is primary infections and the uh, green blue line is secondary infections. And you can see um, across the board that the higher your viral load, the more likely you are to have all of the three severe outcomes. And this was more pronounced in the uh, secondary infections. And then moving on to uh, cytokines. So we looked at IL-1 pathways, which IL-1 is one of the key cytokines in the, um, in the cytokine storm. And we measured IL-1 RA levels as a surrogate for IL-1 activity, as this has a longer half-life um, and is easier to measure. And again, you can see in severe dengue patients uh, in the first three days of their illness, actually IL-1 RA levels had already peaked by day one of illness. And this was higher in patients that went on to get severe dengue uh, later on during the critical phase, which is day four to six. 
but we only wanted to measure the first three days of illness because we wanted to use this as a potential biomarker for disease progression. Then we went and looked at uh, just a general inflammatory marker. So we looked at CRP because obviously this is very easy to access in many ende dengue endemic areas and there are point of care tests. Um, and we uh, used an IDAM study, which was a study of uh, six different countries in South America and in Southeast Asia. And we looked at, uh, again, a severe outcome, but we also looked at other febrile illnesses to see how CRP performed in dengue patients compared to other febrile illness. Um, and we found that actually CRP in dengue patients uh, had a sort of medium level between 20 and 30, which is higher than other viral infections, but lower than bacterial infections. Uh, and we also found that CRP was associated, higher CRP levels was associated with uh, severe um, dengue outcomes. So again, this is uh, looking at your the CRP levels at the bottom and your odds of developing uh, either severe or intermediate dengue at the top, fever clearance time at the bottom left and, and your chance of hospitalization. As you can see really above 30, uh, you, you start seeing higher levels of hospitalization and uh, severe outcome. And then finally, we looked at uh, a different uh, set of uh, biomarkers and tried to see which was the best combination, knowing that the vascular and the immune and inflammatory pathways are all the key pathways in dengue pathogenesis. So we looked at uh, 10 different biomarkers, uh, really from pilot data that we already knew some of these biomarkers were useful uh, and also uh, what were performing well in other studies from the literature. We used the same IDAMS uh, study uh, and had 281 cases and compared to 500 controls who were non-uncomplicated dengue uh, to see how they would perform singly and also in combination. And uh, just to say, first of all, the, all the biomarkers that we looked at, again, in early disease, so disease, uh, illness days one to three, uh, and then we looked at a follow-up period, and sort of day ten and day twenty. All of them, uh, all of them showed that they were associated with a higher risk of the severe outcomes. And again, you can see quite different trajectories. Again, IL one RA levels were peaking very early on, whereas things like ferritin was just starting to climb after sort of day two or three. And then when we looked at them uh, together with the hope that we could try and combine some of these biomarkers, it, possibly in a, a lateral flow test or again, a point of care of two or three of these biomarkers to see if we can predict patients that would go on to get severe disease. Um, so we looked at different subsets. Uh, and first of all, we noticed that there was a difference in the uh, biomarkers between age. So we separated them, looked at children first. Uh, and you can see ferritin, IL-1 RA, probably the best of the of two, and then angiopoietin, two, best of three. And as you can see, um, as you add the biomarkers, it does perform uh, a bit better. And these were slightly different for adults. So of best of two, we were looking at Syndican and IL-18. And again, when you look at best of three, it was ferritin and, and so on. So overall, I think the, um, the best subset for children and adults can be seen at the bottom of the slide. Uh, and these 
markers now need sort of validating in, in, a, in another uh, data set. So apart from using some of these pathogenesis studies to guide biomarkers and try and understand who is at higher risk of severe disease, we also want to use these studies to guide host-directed therapeutics. Uh, and clinical trials. So the first uh, few drugs you can see at the top, these are what have been tried already in dengue and have not shown uh, any significant benefit. And I think really the main reasons for that is uh, that they used a, a unselected patient group. And I think what we have learned from this and from other uh, studies is that we we really need to target patients better and go for patients that because they will respond ex very differently to to the virus and we want to really use some of the pathogenesis work that we've done to target patients um, using specific immunomodulators and we're looking into anakinra and baricitinib at the moment so with that, I think that's my last slide. Yep, just wanted to summarize uh, that what, what I've shown is that dengue does cause this hyperinflammatory syndrome. And uh, what we've seen in other viruses, this can be a target of immunomodulation. And we really need to now apply some of this knowledge and other um, knowledge that we've learned from, from SARS-CoV-2, for example, to try and apply this now for uh, dengue where we still have no therapeutics for. Uh, and I'd just like to thank my group here in Ho Chi Minh City, uh, collaborators and funders at the bottom, and I'm happy to take some questions. Thank you, Sophie. And um, so our, our first question is, is there any evidence of red blood cell uh, involvement in the severity of disease? Uh, no, no. They uh, Across the board, everyone will get some element of thrombocytopenia, but uh, no, not, not red blood cells. Okay. And um, how do you combat the false positivity of dengue in COVID with regard to management, especially in non-dengue season? Yeah, so we haven't seen that that much. I know there are reports um, that have come out of Singapore, for example, but I think the, the clinical syndrome is, is uh, quite different, um, especially uh, once you get past the sort of second or third day in that you, you, do, you don't get any respiratory symptoms early on in dengue and uh, often the blood picture is quite characteristic. So you will start to see thrombocytopenia from day two onwards um, and you, 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 the sort of lack of respiratory symptoms should guide you uh, more towards dengue. Um, and the NS1 uh, rapid tests are, are, are pretty good, but obviously there, there are these concerns that, that you can get some false positives. And um, uh, dengue is vector transmitted, um, you know, and, and COVID uh, aerosol and, and fomite transmitted, but has there been any impact on the instance of dengue um, due to the movement restrictions or change in practices that have occurred uh, during the COVID uh, pandemic? Yeah, so uh, I mean, that's been quite different between the different countries, actually. So uh, during lockdowns, uh, actually, there was uh, an increase in uh, dengue transmission in Singapore, and they've seen a very large outbreak there. However, in, in other places, which could be more work-related transmissions, they've seen a, a decrease. And actually, we had one of the quietest 
dengue years last year. But uh, I think that's probably for a number of reasons, not 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 due to lockdowns, because we really haven't had that many here in Vietnam. So um, I, I think it just it's setting dependent. And you mentioned in your talk that a higher uh, viral load uh, is associated with uh, worse outcomes. And I suppose this reflects back to, to my earlier question with relation to TB. Does this reflect the inability of the host to, to mount a, a meaningful um, a response, a immune response? Um, and are there patient characteristics such as, you know, pregnancy or underlying disease, comorbidities or socioeconomic status that uh, put people at a worse risk of, of having a higher viral load and, and a more severe uh, dengue? And poor outcome. Yeah, so I mean, that's, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think definitely the inability to mount uh, effective immune response is there. And also in dengue, you've got the antibody dependent enhancement. So uh, a secondary infection where you have this sub neutralizing level of antibodies that facilitate viral entry. So there you will get higher, higher viral loads. But I don't think there's data to suggest like pregnancy or other comorbidities would be driving that. Um, however, if you do have a dysfunctional, for example, NK cell response or, or, or an early innate response, then yes, that would lead to uh, higher viral loads. But uh, I think that's probably more genetic factors rather than um, some socioeconomic or, or comorbidities. Um, and have you contemplated looking at the level of oxidative stress um, about biomarkers? No, we haven't. I think there is a group in the Netherlands that are, are looking at that. But yeah, no, we haven't. OK, um, thank you. Um, so I just to, to mention that there were greetings uh, coming in from uh, Georgia, from Africa, from New Zealand, uh, from Romania, uh, from France from New Zealand. And so uh, thank you very much uh, to, to our um, uh, audience. And thank you, Sophie, for a very interesting uh, presentation. Um, I'd like to, to move on next to our uh, uh, next presenter, who's uh, Professor Arjun uh, Dondorf, who's a specialist, um, uh, did a specialist training in intensive, uh, uh, sorry, infectious diseases and internal medicine and critical care in the Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam. Uh, since 2000, uh, he worked in uh, Bangkok, uh, having joined the Mahidol Oxford Tropical Medicine Research Unit, and he's deputy director and head of malaria and critical uh, care department. He's a professor of uh, tropical medicine in Oxford and visiting professor in the University of Mahidol. Uh, his main research area is uh, malaria. He's published more than 400 papers, and uh, he... Um, is uh, um, going to speak to us today about um, sepsis and malaria. And just before he starts, we will have an opportunity for further questions. So there's some questions coming in uh, that we can um, uh, address at the end of uh, uh, Professor Dondorf's um, presentation. Uh, so thank you, Arjun. Yeah, thank you very much, Fida, for that uh, nice introduction. So I've been asked to talk about uh, sepsis and malaria. So I thought I'd take the same approach as Flavia earlier 
to uh, evaluate a bit to what extent malaria fits this, the sepsis definition and the conceptual framework uh, behind that. So uh, severe malaria, it's, it's a severe uh, infection with a high case fatality rate uh, between say 10 and 50%, uh, depending on the number of organs that are uh, involved. Um, if we look at the conceptual framework behind the sepsis 3 definition, then it's an invasive uh, infection causing this dysregulated uh, host response, uh, causing this multi-organ uh, dysfunction. And you see a list there uh, in the slide. And then we have the SOFA parameters or variables to, uh, to pick up those organ failures. And that determines the, uh, whether a patient is defined as having sepsis or septic shock. Um, and it relates to, as a prognosticator, uh, what the case fatality rate is. Um, so for severe malaria, there's definitely a strong pro-inflammatory uh, host response uh, that we think uh, contributes to respiratory failure. ARDS is a feared complication, uh, should be treated according to the surviving sepsis uh, campaign guidelines. Um, there's dyserythropoiesis, probably also mainly caused by the pro-inflammatory host response, and it can also contribute to hepatic and renal failure. Uh, that said, trials that have been done uh, with immunomodulatory agents like uh, steroids or anti-TNF antibodies have not shown uh, any benefits. Uh, at the moment, there's a, a trial going, going on with the uh, rosy glitazone for severe malaria in African, uh, in African children. Um, so, um, so far, so good. Also, the, the QSOFA score, uh, as a surrogate of the, of the full SOFA score, performs very well in low and middle income countries, also in, in areas with a, a high uh, malaria burden. So QSOFA is a good prognosticator, uh, both in bacterial sepsis, but also in the severe malaria. By the way, much better than the old SIRS criteria that we used uh, previously. So if we go a bit deeper into the different um, manifestations of uh, severe malaria, it's a multi-organ disease that, which uh, depends on the age of presentation, uh, which organs are uh, most involved. So severe metabolic acidosis, you see, see in about half of the patients, both children and adults, and cerebral malaria, so irousable coma is also a very common manifestation both in children and adults, whereas uh, hepatic failure and renal failure, but also pulmonary edema is much more common in adults, whereas anemia, convulsions in, in the context of cerebral malaria is much more prominent in children, as is hypoglycemia. Um, high hemodynamic shock is relatively rare in around only 10% of, of the patients uh, and I'll come back to that a bit later, which is because it's surprising that despite these high pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines circulating, high nitric oxide uh, levels, you still see 
relatively rare uh, hypo, severe hypotension. So if we go through some of these manifestations, see how much of that is caused by the dysregulated host response or other pathophysiological mechanism, cerebral malaria is really primarily caused by an obstruction of the microcirculation by parasitized red blood cells. So the parasite lives in the red blood cell, doesn't go anywhere else. Um, and uh, with maturation of the parasite, the red cell becomes very sticky and uh, starts to cytoadhere to microvascular endothelium, blocking the microcirculation. You see a light microscopic picture over there. And if you look in pathology studies, you can see that children dying from cerebral malaria and also adults uh, versus uh, patients dying from severe malaria, but not without coma, that this sequestration is observed much, much more extensively in patients with coma. It's one of the main indicators that it's the central part of the pathophysiology. In children also, cerebral edema plays a role later on in the course of the disease. So here you can't really say it's the, it's the desregulated host response. It's, you can't blame your poor patients from that. It's the sequestration of these parasitized red blood cell that cause coma. Similarly for uh, the metabolic acidosis, which is mainly a lactic acid acidosis because of organ disperfusion uh, with anaerobic uh, glycolysis causing a lactic acidosis. Uh, that also is, in general, not caused by, uh, by macrocirculatory uh, failure, so hemodynamic shock. It's, it's, again, caused by blockage of the microcirculation by these uh, erythrocytes caused uh, in uh, having the more mature forms of the parasite. And you see those pictures there above uh, the 48-hour life cycle of the parasite. And once you start seeing the, the pigment in the parasite, the brownish pigment, that's when they start sequestering in the microcirculation. And you don't find them circulating in the peripheral blood, but they declare themselves because on schizond rupture, that is the most mature stage, they release this parasite protein, HRP2, and the plasma level of that is a very good surrogate measure of the total parasite burden. And that correlates quite nicely with uh, the plasma lactate levels in patients with severe malaria. Uh, why don't we see hemodynamic shock? Well, we think that is because with the burst of the erythrocyte at the moment of schizond rupture, 80% uh, of the hemoglobin is eaten by the parasite, but the rest is released in the circulation. And uh, the heme part of that is known to be a very strong scavenger of, uh, of nitric oxide. Uh, and we have shown that indeed uh, the plasma hemoglobin concentration uh, correlates nicely uh, with uh, the uh, vascular resistance that uh, we measure. Uh, and then in the middle, you see, again, it's uh, a nice EM picture of, uh, of sequestration causing a traffic jam behind the sequestered erythrocytes, blocking the circulation. So that's the cause of the tissue hypoperfusion 
it's not uh, shock or intravascular dehydration. Uh, related to that, uh, the microcirculation, unlike in bacterial sepsis, is not restored by fluid management. And that's probably best illustrated by uh, the famous FEAST trial, uh, where they showed that fluid bolus therapy increased mortality. The majority of those uh, children, African children, with uh, compensated shock, in fact, had severe malaria. So almost 60% were uh, malaria slides positive, and they had an almost doubling of their mortality uh, when uh, they were treated with fluid bolus therapy, either with saline or albumin. Big study, a thousand patients in, in all the, the treatment arms. Uh, we also looked at this in adults with severe malaria, uh, trying to fluid resuscitate them carefully under PICO guidance up to an optimal global anti-diastolic uh, index. Um, after fluid resuscitation, that's this graph, uh, the, uh, the filling status did not correlate at all with the plasma lactate levels. In fact, there was an inverse correlation. So again, showing that uh, it's the blockage in the microcirculation causing the lactic acidosis. Um, the fluid therapy, uh, although we, we tried to monitor that carefully, did cause uh, pulmonary edema in quite an, a large proportion, around a fifth of, uh, of the patients. Another important pathophysiological pathway, which has little to do with a dysregulated uh, host response, uh, is the circulation of uh, free heme. I mentioned it, uh, it earlier. Uh, it's not only a nitric oxide scavenger, but it's also highly oxidative, uh, which is in particular damaging for uh, the kidney. Uh, and we have shown that uh, the concentration of cell-free hemoglobin uh, correlates with uh, acute kidney injury in those patients. And that also correlates with uh, oxidative stress markers, isoprostane and isofuranes. Uh, correlating with, uh, with renal failure. The nice thing about this is that the oxidative properties of iron, which is iron 4 plus in this case, uh, can be uh, reversed by paracetamol. Paracetamol reduces feral iron back to ferric iron, which is no longer uh, oxidative. And we did a trial in adult patients and in the patients presenting with a high concentration of cell-free hemoglobin, um, paracetamol was very protective for the kidney, reducing uh, the incidence of acute kidney injury, as you can see in the right graph there. So does severe malaria fulfill the, the, the sepsis uh, criteria? In part, it does. There is a high inflammatory response uh, responsible for some of the manifestations of severe malaria, but there are clearly also direct pathogenic uh, effects. And I highlighted uh, the sequestration of the parasites, erythrocytes in the, in the microcirculation which is really the pathophysiological hallmark of severe fossil malaria, causing a coma, but also other organ failure. 
and the other important pathophysiological pathway of uh, the oxidative damage caused by cell-free hemoglobin and the heme that eludes uh, from there. So I think the conceptual framework for severe malaria needs to be adapted to that, that there are clearly direct pathogenic effects. In fact, uh, I think that in many other severe infections, uh, these direct pathogenic effects should be taken into account and be added to the sepsis 3 uh, definition. So what can we do about those direct pathogenic effects? Not much yet, except for giving a very potent antimalarial drug. Uh, the best drug we have at the moment is parenteral artesunate. Uh, much, much better than, uh, than quinine, both in adults and in children. Uh, it's very worrying, therefore, that now in uh, Southeast Asia, especially in the Great Mekong subregion, we see uh, artemisinin resistance emerging and spreading and also increasing reports from some African countries, in particular Rwanda, that artemisinin resistance has emerged there. So we have to look at new potent antimalarial drugs that attack the ring stage parasites. Uh, and the spiroindolones, uh, or KE609, is a promising candidate uh, there. Uh, we are also looking at uh, specific adjuvant therapies targeting uh, infected red cell sequestration. Uh, and there is a candidate there that's Savuparin, which is a low molecular heparin that lacks the anticoagulant activity of the heparins, but does desequester sequestered red cells. Uh, it looks promising uh, in, in uncomplicated malaria and will now be trialed in uh, severe malaria in African children. So, in conclusion, uh, severe falciparum malaria pathogenesis has unique future that has some fundamental differences from bacterial sepsis. Again, I mentioned microvascular sequestration of parasitized red cells and the cell-free hemoglobin-mediated oxidative damage. Uh, and this does have therapeutic consequences. So uh, in order to uh, address uh, sequestration, uh, we, at the moment, only have our antimalarial drugs, but there are some future therapies that are being trialed. Uh, the fluid management in severe malaria is much more restricted than in bacterial sepsis. Uh, and we have an adjuvant, uh, very cheap, uh, easy paracetamol to detoxify cell-free hemoglobin. Um, that's it. Thank you for your attention. Uh, thank you very much, Arjun, for a fascinating um, uh, presentation. We'll only be able to take a few questions because the next session is uh, ready to start. And I'm happy to be able to tell everyone that Dr. Shisti has been able to join us. After all, it's some connectivity issues. But before we go to uh, Dr. Shisti, um, a couple of questions. Uh, is it true that paracetamol slows uh, the clearance, uh, parasite clearance? Um, and therefore may yeah. also be harmful for the antimicrobial response? Yeah, so there's there's one publication now uh, around 10 years ago, I think, uh, with the observation that in patients, children treated with paracetamol, uh, the parasite clearance seemed to be slower 
Uh, we could not reproduce that in, in our studies, uh, and we, we even think that it is a, uh, that that observation is caused by the fact that uh, fever increases red cell sequestration as an earlier stage of parasite development. So if you then block the fever, the parasites will circulate longer, a longer part of their 48 hour uh, life cycle. And that might give the impression that you have, have higher parasitemia, whereas it's only the circulating peripheral block parasitemia. So um, I don't think that that is the case, but uh, it has been shown in that one publication. Okay, thank you. And do you think there's an association with other hemolytic germs, uh, brucella, staphylococcus, streptococcus, haemophilus? Uh, um, are, are they uh, promoters of mortality in uh, malaria phosphorum? Yeah, that's a very good uh, question. I didn't go into that. So in children with severe malaria, uh, it has been estimated that more than 10% of the cases have concomitant invasive bacterial infection, uh, and which definitely also contributes to, uh, to mortality. Uh, and therefore the guideline for the management of children, uh, African children with severe falciparum malaria is to also uh, give broad spectrum antibiotic therapy. Okay, um, so would you recommend vasopressors then rather than fluid uh, boluses uh, for the management of shock? And would you recommend um, low molecular weight heparin for all uh, patients with severe malaria? Yeah, the latter one still needs to be trialed, so I would wait for that. Uh, giving vasopressive therapy is not needed in the vast majority of patients because only around 10% will, uh, will have shock. Uh, I think in those patients, indeed, uh, still you have to, to give fluid uh, treatment, uh, but I would be a bit careful and start relatively early with your vasopressive therapy. Um, thank you so much, Arjun. I have to say I've learned an awful lot and it's given me a greater understanding of the outcome of the FEAST trial. And I think understanding the pathophysiological process is so important in guiding our treatments of patients. So thank you very much uh, uh, for your talk. Um, I am going to uh, now move to uh, Dr. Shisti, who thankfully has been able to, to join us here uh, uh, today. Um, Dr. Chisti is from Bangladesh. His main research interest is in pediatric infectious disease. He has expertise in pediatric critical care medicine and respiratory medicine, and uh, predominantly in uh, those uh, resource uh, limited settings. And he's a particular interest in low cost, innovative work and scale up in resource limited settings uh, with the aim of uh, reducing mortality in the under fives. So uh, many thanks, uh, Dr. Shisti, for, for joining us today. Thank you very much. Um, I'm really sorry that uh, um, I uh, joined at the last moment because I have been working in the COVID world as in charge. I have a lot of bad passions. So, um, Excuse me, but I'm also um, think myself fortunate enough that eventually I uh, able to make it. Thank you very much. I want to um, tell about uh, the story of sepsis and diarrhea, and especially um, uh, children who used to present with diarrhea. 
So uh, um, globally, um, as we know that uh, um, uh, the under five mortality since um, 2000, there is significant reduction of deaths from sepsis and diarrhea. However, if you compare the sepsis-related death reduction to other diseases, you can see that um, we have only 30% reduction of death from sepsis, whereas in other diseases, there is enormous um, improvement. But that does mean that we have still a lot of things to do to have the further reduction of sepsis-related deaths. So um, when um, um, our sepsis um, globally occurs, and if we see the deaths, um, that is uh, among the 48.9 million people who had the sepsis uh, in globally, um, there were 11 million deaths in 2017, representing almost 20% of the global deaths. And uh, when it is associated to diarrhea, that is even higher. So um, reduction of mortality from uh, sepsis also depends on early identification of warning signs, especially in case of if there is comorbidity like diarrhea. However, uh, diagnosis of sepsis in diarrheal chitin is very uh, tricky because of the fact that <clears throat> diarrheal children also used to present with dehydration. So um, there is masking of signs of sepsis in case of uh, presence of dehydration. So we need to be very careful um, um, in those cases. So um, uh, we do not know about uh, the early warning signs, especially we don't have any uh, uh, published article for that. And uh, uh, what have become early warning, um, warning signs in case of um, children who present with diarrhea as well as sepsis. So we wanted to evaluate the um, um, uh, um, children who um, uh, um, died at our Dhaka hospital of ICD-DRV um, and we wanted to uh, show what are the darling signs. So for that, uh, we actually conducted a retrospective chart analysis in our Dhaka hospital of ICD-DRV for one year and sepsis was defined very conventionally that is um, um, tachycardia plus hypothermia or hyperthermia with abnormal WBC count plus presumed presence of uh, infection. However, for the definition of severe sepsis, we modified the definition uh, that we uh, um, initially corrected uh, the dehydration or if there is no signs of dehydration, then we have took other signs of uh, peripheral perfusion, that the poor peripheral perfusion is the other signs of severe sepsis, like that um, um, age-specific hypotension or absent peripheral pulses or delayed capillary filling time. And all these are present in case of dehydration. So we need to have the correction of dehydration or we need to be sure that there is no sign of dehydration. So um, um, when we um, compare the children who died at our hospital compared to those who survived, we have found that um, uh, children who died uh, more often had shortness of breath and uh, all, um, um, they were abnormally sleepy, that is, they were drowsy, and uh, they presented with dehydrating diarrhea. And even after correction of dehydration, uh, we uh, found that 
um, um, those who died, um, uh, most often they had presented with dehydration. And even correction after dehydration, we found that they um, often ended up with septic shock compared to those who survived. However, um, uh, we didn't find any uh, um, uh, difference uh, um, between the death and survivors um, uh, among the laboratory investigation that we have done conventionally. Then we have done the logistic regression analysis, the multiple logistic regression analysis to understand the independent clinical predictors of death. For that, we <clears throat> put all the um, um, significantly associated variables, those uh, are found in uh, chi-square test. And it has been found that um, 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 shortness of breath, dehydrating, diarrhea, septic shock, um, revealed as the independent predictors of death in case of children who uh, um, admitted with diarrhea um, with or without the presence of dehydration. So um, from these findings, um, we can summarize that uh, um, children who um, uh, admit with diarrhea, you know, largest diarrhea hospital in Dhaka Hospital of International Center of Diarrheal Disease and Research. Um, um, they often had severe sepsis and um, they had um, high mortality. And we have found that shortness of breath can be used as an early warning sign um, for the predicting of worse outcome in those children, um, especially with the non-dehydrating diarrhea and severe sepsis. That does mean that um, when we assess their was no sign of dehydration, although some of them presented with dehydration. So identification of these simple clinical features, um, such as shortness of breath and septic shock in predicting deaths in children under five years of age with diarrhea who were treated in um, Dhaka Hospital of ICD-DRB ICU um, for severe sepsis may help to design further intervention studies that may further help to reduce mortality in such children, especially um, limited resources like Bangladesh and other developing countries. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Shiste. Um, it was a very interesting presentation. Um, the, the underlying driver for the shortness of breath, um, is that related to um, uh, acidosis? Is it related to uh, fluid overload? Or can it be uh, both, uh, either depending on, on the uh, clinical scenario and the treatment given? Uh, what's your views on, on, on that? Yeah, um, um, our understanding was that uh, um, um, from previous uh, data from other developing countries, this might be uh, mostly due to metabolic acidosis and um, mostly due to uh, increased serum lactate. But we didn't have that luxury to perform the serum lactate in our study population. Uh, however, we um, um, actually evaluated the metabolic acidosis, but it was um, um, it was similarly distributed in both the groups. So we didn't really uh, uh, we didn't know whether metabolic acidosis had a part in this uh, uh, population. But our understanding was that it was mostly due to metabolic acidosis. Yeah. 
Okay, um, thank you. And, and therefore, um, what, what um, markers did you use to help you guide uh, the safe uh, fluid resuscitation of your patients? Yeah, we actually used a very conventional um, role that is uh, for, for children who uh, are non-malnourished, we have given um, actually according to surviving sepsis guideline 20 ml per kilo uh, fluid, I mean up to 60 ml per kilo. But uh, those who had severe malnutrition, we were a uh, little bit um, um, conservative. According to WHO guideline, we provided them actually to, um, 15 to 20 ml per kilo over one hour because of the fact that there is high chance of um, actually interstitial edema if uh, we used to give very rapid fluid um, transfusion, rapid fluid infusion in case of children with severely malnourished. And mortality was very high among the children who were severely malnourished. We didn't show here in separately, but uh, in um, that is another um, analysis. Uh, it used to take time. This is why we didn't show here. But um, those who were severely malnourished, uh, um, the mortality rate was significantly higher uh, among them. And, and this is a bit out of the, 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 the left field, if you like. Um, you're the inventor of, of the bubble CPAP um, device. And is there a role for using that um, uh, low-tech CPAP device to help manage shortness of breath that may be related to uh, fluid overload uh, or for any other cause in, in this patient population? Yeah, uh, um, very important question. <clears throat> actually, uh, you are quite right. Um, when actually um, bubble CPAP was, uh, it has been mainly used in our Dhaka hospital of ICDDRV um, for the last seven years, uh, um, mainly for the children with severe pneumonia and hypoxemia. However, um, 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 uh, many of our patients come with severe sepsis and septic shock and, uh, um, and many of them, uh, um, it used to be uh, uh, um, sourced from uh, severe pneumonia and hypoxemia. And when we used to use bubble CPAP in uh, those children, and we found uh, uh, very good results. And the survival rate is very high here. Um, um, overall survival rate is um, around 95%. But those who have septic shock, as well as shortness of breath and pneumonia combination, uh, survival rate around 80% of them, yeah. Okay, wow, that's uh, that's great. Listen, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Christie, and thank you so much for coming away from your um, very heavy workload, and I wish you and your patients very well. Uh, thank oh, you. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so um, I'd like to thank you all uh, for joining us uh, here today and in particular uh, thank our sponsors who um, uh, without their assistance we wouldn't be able to uh, deliver on this uh, really important uh, congress that is uh, so accessible to, across the world and I'd like to thank our organisers, the Global uh, Sepsis uh, Alliance and in particular Marvin Zig. Essek and his team uh, for, for putting this uh, Congress and session together. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the Congress. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to making this possible.
Session 6 is already in your feed, and Session 8 and 9 will follow on May 25th. See you next week!